We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good evening to one and all. Thank you. Uh, if you're joining us online, thank you for doing that this evening. I invite you to turn your Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 9, please. We want you to be able to follow along as we read, study the Word together. Acts chapter 9. We've already begun our study in chapter 9 a couple of weeks ago, but we had a missionary visit intervening there, so we're uh, coming back to it. Uh, we saw that uh, Saul was converted to follow Christ and uh, that God chose Paul to serve him. And I won't go through all the uh, introductory material again, but you just remember Saul went to Damascus seeking to destroy the church there. And uh, God uh, turned his uh, life right around on the road to Damascus by uh, having him encounter the Lord Jesus Christ on the way. And uh, as he did that, he was um, bathed in some very bright light of the glory of Christ and was blinded by that. We know that it wasn't in a, a dream. It was in midday. It wasn't a hallucination because the others that were with him saw and heard something going on. They couldn't quite understand what the words were, what it meant. Uh, but Paul did, or Saul, uh, as we have known him up until this point by his Hebrew name, and uh, he was instructed, go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And so he was uh, here going to be told in just a few moments as we start looking in chapter 9, verse 10. Um, how else can I introduce this for you? Uh, we, we looked at the issue about uh, kicking against the goads and all of that. We don't have to trouble ourselves with the textual issue there because we know that, did, that was said, even though uh, maybe some manuscripts in the book of Acts don't have all those words there, but that's all right. Um, so Saul's belief in the Messiah seemed to start very soon. It's, it's, hard to, it's hard to disbelieve in somebody you've just met, okay, and know uh, what he or she is about. Um, the, uh, the illustration that's helpful sometimes in, in witnessing, when you're witnessing to an atheist is, you know, I'd like to introduce you to Jesus and they you know, might scoff and say, well, he's just a figment of your imagination. Well, the fact is we know him. We personally know Christ. And uh, so we might say, well, um, uh, are you married? Yeah, yeah, I'm married. Um, what's your wife's name? Well, it's, you know, whatever, Jane or something. And, and you might say, well, I don't believe in the existence of Jane because I've never met her. I've never seen her. Uh, and the fellow who you're witnessing to says, oh, but I know her because she's my wife. <laughs> you see, you've just illustrated to him how you know Christ. He hasn't been introduced to Jesus, but you don't know his wife because you haven't been introduced to her. And uh, I think it's a, it's a helpful little illustration. It obviously doesn't break down all the barriers and of, somebody's, of somebody's unbelief because Christ is in a different 
place than uh, than uh, the, the man's wife is. But it does illustrate something. We you know we sing that song. How do I? Know? You ask me how I know he lives. He lives in my heart. You know, and that may be a little bit mystical to some people, but the reality is that Jesus did exist, does exist, and did do something very significant for us. Now Saul does believe that Jesus um, is, is the Son of God because not only did he claim to be the Son of God while he was on earth, but now he's met him from heaven and he can't, can't uh, contradict it. He can't come up with some other explanation. He simply knows that uh, he's been revealed, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he knows that Christ is alive, that he died. He, he, knew, he knew that he died. He knew that he's alive now. Um, and he acknowledges him as Lord, which is really the, the very definition of what it means to be a Christian person, that you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and that you uh, acknowledge him as Lord. So we, we move on then to chapter 9, verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Now Ananias was a disciple of Jesus, which means that he was a target of Saul's hateful plot. And so he knew that this guy was coming. I mean, the news preceded him evidently and, uh, and said to him, the Lord... Uh, Said the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And so the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he's praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him, so that his hand, singular, on him, so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So see, he knew what the plan was. It was a public persecution that was about to break out against the Jewish uh, people and, and the, who believed and perhaps others who believed as well, but certainly in the synagogues. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Notice he spent time with the disciples, not against the disciples. That's quite a change. Uh, that has come upon him. So the Lord gives a huge surprise to Ananias by speaking to him. Now, that was a shock. Let's just face it, right? That didn't happen every day. It didn't happen probably ever in Ananias' life. And uh, somehow he knew that it was the Lord uh, speaking to him. And uh, it's just very interesting to think about this. I mean, nerve-wracking too, if the Lord were to speak especially point you out for a, a task, a ministry. You have to do this in, in such a way that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the church in, in kind of um, commissioning you to do it. It wasn't you thinking that it was God's will for you to do, and you're pretty convinced about that. It was actually God entering into human history here and telling you to do this. 
I just find it interesting, too, that this man, Ananias, responds to the Lord in the way that the Old, Pro- Old Testament prophets did. Um, you know, who will go, whom shall I send? What does Isaiah say? Here am I. Uh, you know, God calls in Genesis 22 to uh, the patriarch and, uh, and says to him, Abraham, and what does Abraham say? Here I am. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. And, and this, is what, uh, this is what Ananias says. He says, here I am, Lord. Here. And he just responds. Moses did the same thing. Remember at the burning bush? Here I am. It's me. Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 3. Remember that passage? Or over and over, the Lord's calling Samuel, and Samuel goes to run to Eli and says, hey, I'm here. And finally realizes, Eli realizes, uh-oh, it's the voice of God that he's, he's hearing. So he said, when you, know, when you hear, just say, here I am. Here's your servant. And so Moses, Samuel, Isaiah, Abraham, all like this. Ananias enters into their line of respondence to the call of God. Here I am. That's a, a submissive response, isn't it? It's not, you know... <laughs> talk to the hand. <laughs> it's not, I'm going to ignore you. It's not, I'm plugging my ears and all that sort of stuff. It's a submissive response to the call of God. And although we don't have God, uh, you know, intervening, you know, today or tonight in our life this way, this exact way, we do have God's word and it would do well for us when we sit and read the word or, or hear preaching that we would say, here I am, Lord. I'm, I'm your servant. I'm waiting to hear what you have for me. And to humble ourselves that way like Ananias did. Now, there may be some things that you hear that are not initially palatable. Peter, let down your net on the right side of the boat. And Peter says, hey, man, <laughs> we tried that already. We tried the right, the left, the front, the back, every which way, and we didn't get anything. But nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. Remember how we used that on Sunday? Initially, it might seem like unpalatable or you don't want to do it. But if the Lord asks you to do it, if he instructs you to do it, then you better humble yourself and do it. So God had a job for Ananias. He was to go find Saul of Tarsus. He told him what street he was even on. Now, that's... That, that might be a task. I don't know how long Straight Street is and how many houses are on it. You know, if I told you, go to Streamwood Drive and find, you know, Joe Blow. <laughs> okay, which house? Well, I don't know. Just start knocking, you know. 200 houses later, you finally find the guy. Um, so he, he knew where he you know, generally was. He said, lay hands on him to return his sight. And, and, and we can be quite sure, even though... Um, the, the Lord doesn't say all these details, we can be quite sure that, that he was, Ananias was to tell Saul exactly what the Lord said to, to Ananias. So he pro- conveyed this message. He didn't just go there silently, hand, lay his hands on him and walk out. <laughs> he did something more than that. Um, and uh, we can uh, add here from uh, Acts chapter 22 because in that part of the, the book of Acts, Paul relates a little bit more detail in Acts 22.16. Um, Ananias uh, comes to him 
And uh, the God of our fathers, this is verse 14, has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men and of what you've seen and heard. And why now are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. It was time for Saul to be baptized. He believed in the Lord and uh, time for him to, to move ahead in his, in his faith. And so Ananias urges him to get up, be baptized, to symbolize the forgiveness of sins and to call on the name of Christ. So this is right at the center of, of the revolution that was going on inside the mind of, of Saul. He's now considering Jesus to be Lord and believing that God raised him from the dead, which he hated just yesterday or the day before. He realized that Jesus was God in the flesh and only through him were sins remitted. He knew the teaching of the book of Hebrews before Hebrews was even written. The animal sacrifices can't take away my sins. They cannot. In fact, there were decades, centuries, well, really decades uh, in, in Old Testament history where there was no temple to offer sacrifices. And now today even, now this is after Saul, but for, for centuries there's been no temple, no sacrifice. How are sins remitted to the, in the Jewish mind? There's no blood. Without the, remitting of, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, right? So he realized all of this. Um, he was moving out of, well, let me say it this way. His poor efforts in Judaism failed to get rid of his sin. He now realized what he wrote about in Philippians 3, that what things I counted gain for myself before, now I count loss for Christ. I, w- I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, studied under Gamaliel, Jew of the Jews, a Hebrew, a Benjamite, all this sort of stuff, but it counted for nothing. He realizes also, in the midst of all this, he's moving out of a strictly monotheistic mind to a Trinitarian monotheistic mind in which he could speak of Christ as he says in Romans 9, 5, speaking of him as God over all, blessed forever. That's what he calls Jesus. That would have been impossible for him to do before his heart was opened to the gospel of Jesus. The Spirit of God is the one who caused this revolution. He convicted Paul of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. Uh, He opened his heart to understand the things of God. John chapter 16 talks about that. He caused Paul to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Remember that in 1 Corinthians 12, it says, No man uh, acknowledges or calls Jesus Lord except by the Spirit. That's what has happened here. And the Spirit of God washed and regenerated Saul. So Saul's total total conception of who God is has changed now. God is not merely a a strictly monotheistic God. Christ is Lord. The Spirit of God has regenerated him, and he's beginning to understand all of this now. Ananias, uh, meanwhile, here has been told to go. He's Uh, He hesitates. His hesitation is understandable because he was one of the targets of Saul, but he was called to do it. By the way, sometimes God calls his servants to do things that are dangerous. And what do you do? No, 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 no. Too dangerous. (laughs) Too much risk. Can't do that. No, that's not how Ananias was, and that's not how many, many Christians over the years have been. Danger is not treated lightly, 
but it's not treated as everything. And so we, we uh, you know, yeah, it is dangerous. It's dangerous to fly overseas. It's dangerous to move your family to the mission field. It's, it's dangerous to go to a particularly dangerous place, you know. But uh, I would venture to say, would you agree with me that it's more dangerous to be outside of the will of God than it is to be in a dangerous place inside the will of God? Certainly, we should be able to agree with that. The Lord reiterated to Ananias several things here, and he explains. Saul is a chosen vessel. He's going to uh, minister. Listen to this. Uh, A chosen vessel of mine, verse 15, to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, which Paul did, right? Gentiles, kings, even Caesar, uh, Felix, uh, Festus, um, King Agrippa, Drusilla, uh, and the children of Israel. Of course, Saul would always go into the synagogues first and the cities that he ended up going to, ministering there, convincing people, persuading them that Jesus is the Christ and died for sins and all that. So he did all of that. Uh, and then, um, and especially the, the Gentiles. I mean, Paul calls himself the apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry to the Gentiles. I've been given this ministry, 1 Timothy 2, 2 Timothy 1, uh, Romans eleven thirteen. 13. So I don't, we don't have to go over those tonight for sake of time, but you know that he is known as the apostle to the Gentiles, whereas Peter was more known as the apostle to the Jews. Not that they had different gospels. They didn't have two churches. They didn't have two different messages. They just had two different audiences that they specialized in in their work. Uh, The Lord also told Ananias that Saul was going to suffer for the name of Christ. You see that in verse 16. I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, if you were me, where would you go in the Bible or what things would you begin to list right now about the things that Paul suffered for the gospel? Can you think of a passage where he talks about that? How many times did he receive 39 stripes, save one? Like five times? A day and a night he spent in the deep in shipwrecks, dangers of robbers and danger, perils of his own countrymen and illness and famine and you know, hunger and thirst and sleeplessness and all of these things. He suffered all of that. And in the end, we understand he suffered martyrdom for Christ. So again, the word of God is... Um, doubled, redoubled in its certainty. We see that Paul had a lot of suffering. And in, uh, there's one I, I did highlight in Colossians. It's an um, interesting little verse. It's not the one I, uh, with all the list of stuff in it, but he says in Colossians 1.24, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul almost sees himself like he's the instrument by which God is, is pouring out a lot of suffering on the church and Paul can take this, the sufferings of the body of Christ himself. This is persecution suffering, not meritorious suffering for sin, okay? So Paul sees himself as kind of a sponge that's absorbing a lot of this suffering for the church and uh, he's looking for it to be fulfilled because at some point, I think he sees that all, all of the church as a big sponge, so to speak, that has to absorb that suffering. There's going to be a time when it's full. 
in a time when it's done and there will be no more suffering and God will be then glorifying the church instead of allowing them to us to have suffering. Um, okay, so uh, he's, he was going to give a lot of suffering, Paul was, and now he's going to get a lot of suffering. So then after uh, Ananias lays this out to him, uh, he lays his hands on him and, and speaks as he did there in verse number 17. Uh, the Lord uh, has sent me, you know, here's the message. He tells him all of this stuff and uh, that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, Like scales, I, what, what were they exactly? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You know, his eyes were really crusted over. I guess he had a super bad case of pink eye or something. I, I, I can't say that really seriously. Something like scales. Something came off of his eyes. I don't know what it was, but uh, he had that happen, and so he could see immediately once again. And then he arose and was baptized. Now, I don't know exactly what this, this the next thing I'm going to say, but I would say this. The pattern of the Lord when he heals somebody, the general pattern is he heals them thoroughly and fully. Yes? He didn't leave a little bit of leprosy on one part of the man who he healed. He healed him entirely. Uh, the woman with the flow of blood, healed. The blind man that he healed with the clay that he made with the spittle on the ground, healed. He could see. The man who he healed, he said, look, I see men like trees walking. And then he touched him again and kind of reconfigured his, uh, you know, got things clear or, or made him interpret the data that he was seeing in his, in his eyes correctly. All of those were healed. Resurrections from the dead, you know, didn't just leave people lying on a couch or whatever. Lazarus was able to get up and walk out of the grave. He was of some, you know, strength. So I'm saying that to say I, I cannot s- say that God healed his eyes only partially. It would seem that he healed them fully. Why do I say that? Because later on, Paul would say something that leads people to believe that he has an eye-seeing problem. Well, I mean, maybe years later he had the cataracts or whatever, and, and possibly, you know, there was an after effect of this blinding thing that he had with the Lord. I don't know, but it seems to me like his eyes would have been fully healed so he could see. He received his sight at once, it says. It doesn't, see, it doesn't say he received part of his sight or some sight. It just pictures it as he is healed. He's able to see again. So I don't know the whole deal about, you know, when Paul says, you know, I testify, you would have plucked out your own eyes for me. Like, Why? Is that because his eyes were bad? That was his thorn in the flesh? Or was it just because he was saying, you know, kind of like we say in English, like, you would have given me your right hand. You would have given me the shirt off your back. You know, even though he didn't need a shirt off their back or he didn't need their right hand. It's just a manner of expression to say, you were so caring for me, you would have given me anything. So don't be so sure that, you know, Paul had bad eyesight. May have, but may not have. So... Um, in any case, um, the return of physical sight to Paul is a fitting analogy, I think, for the entrance of spiritual light into his life. He was blind. 
but now he sees. The word of God became a lamp unto his feet and a light unto his path. And so the healing of his physical eyes is a fitting analogy for the entrance of spiritual sight into his life. His spiritual eyes now we're seeing where he didn't see before. And that's what God does with people. And it's very difficult for those of us who have received our sight to see people who have blindness still. Isn't it? You know, it's, it's, one, it's one thing for a person with seeing eyes to see somebody who's blind and feel like, man, I wish they could see. I wish they could see. You know, and they wouldn't have to use the cane or the seeing eye dog or all the different helps that they need and the braille and all of that sort of thing. They, I wish they could see. But don't you wish people could see who, who say things like, you know, God doesn't exist or, I, you know, God, everybody's going to be fine in the end or we just are annihilated and die and go, you know, to nowhere and, and uh, God didn't create the world and, and uh, you know, all these immoral things that are going on today. Oh, they're fine, whatever, everybody teach his own and, you know, whatever is, is and stuff. It's just the blindness it's very difficult to, to uh, process. They need help. We need to pray God will open their eyes. It says then that um, also he was uh, filled with the Spirit, or he was to be filled with the Spirit, and I believe that he was uh, right away. Um, only this, this only really happens after regeneration. Um, his, his eyesight returned. He submitted to water baptism. Uh, he was weakened, of course, after a long abstinence of food. As you can imagine, when's the last time you went without food for three days? You kind of feel pretty weak after that, don't you, if you've been in a long-term kind of stomach bug or something like that? Um, very, very weak. And so uh, he needed to eat or to restore his strength and get some fluids and things to uh, get him back up on, uh, on his feet better. But uh, he, he was then filled with uh, God's Spirit, which means the Spirit of God was influencing him, teaching him, filling him, guiding him. Um, it's not like a, you know, a, a robot type thing where Saul lets go and lets God and the Spirit of God takes over and moves him like a puppet. That's not what spirit filling is. We've talked about that before. So he spent some time in Damascus then with the disciples there. And uh, all I can say is, what a turnaround that was. <laughs> What a turnaround that was. A real change was wrought in Saul's heart. It's, it's completely uh, clear that he was entirely transformed in his mind and spirit. He was, you know, for the first days, perhaps even weeks and months, in somewhat of a state of spiritual shock. Can you imagine? Your whole world is turned upside down like that. It wasn't... You know, for some people, it's like a whole process over the course of time, like they begin to doubt. Maybe they grew up as a Jewish person. They begin to doubt. And who's this Jesus I've heard about? And everybody in my circles are saying, stay away from that guy. But he seems to fulfill some of these Old Testament prophecies. And, and he, died. he says he died for sins and he was the final sacrifice and all this. And, you know, maybe over months and years, finally the person comes to... They've had a long time to deal with this. Paul got it all in one big dose, just a huge shock to the system. But as that shock wore off, he was able to process what happened to him and uh, got back on his feet uh, in days later. God uh, chose Saul. Would you agree? 
He chose him specifically. He didn't just happen to come down on the road to Damascus and uh, look at this random guy walking by, you know. I'll take him. I'll turn him into the apostle to the Gentiles. No, God chose Saul specifically. And all of his background and all of his zeal and all of his education and knowledge and all of that, he knew God knew what he was doing. If you are a Christ follower, God chose you too before you knew it. And he purposed to transform you like he transformed Saul. He also purposed to have you do good works for him. Remember how right away from the beginning he says, uh, you know, I'm going to show him what things he's going to suffer and, and he's got a lot of work for me to do, basically. Well, that's what God did for us. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tell us that salvation is by grace through faith, not of works, but that God has ordained good works for us, verse 10, to do which have been prepared beforehand all the way back from eternity past. So we are indeed chosen to be forgiven, but we're also chosen to serve God, okay? Not just to be forgiven and, and a whole bunch of other things too. Not just to be justified, but to be transformed, to be sanctified, to be made pure, to be made holy. Uh, not just to get fire insurance, you know, to get your ticket to heaven, to get your green card for the kingdom of God, but to actually be changed and transformed and live for him. So we're chosen to be forgiven and all of those things and chosen to serve and to do good works for him. And so the question, kind of application, simple question here tonight, are you going to be like Saul and say, as he says in Acts 26, 19, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I obeyed the heavenly vision of God calling me to live for him, to, to believe in him, and to serve him. Or are you rather going to say, eh, I'll deal with it later. You'll be disobedient to the vision. What's the vision? Well, you don't, it's not a vision per se. It's that you know that Jesus Christ came and died for your sins and rose again. I was just thinking about this regarding our Christmas program in a few days, and I haven't begun all of my preparation for that message yet, but that starts uh, tomorrow, maybe tonight. <laughs> um, but I was thinking, you know, we would not celebrate the birth of Christ if Christ had not done all the other things that he did. Like, he would be a nobody born in Bethlehem, except that he lived a perfect life, died on a cross, rose again from the dead, and transformed the entire world. That's why we celebrate his birth. And so to just celebrate Christmas because of a nice little baby in a manger is not the full picture. And so we'll be sharing something about that, of course, on Sunday in our Christmas program. But, uh, you know, I don't want to be disobedient to the heavenly vision. I don't want you to be disobedient to the heavenly word. So please listen to it carefully in these days. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, Paul and his testimony, for Ananias and for how you use them. Thank you for this recorded message here uh, for us in Acts 9. And I pray, Lord, that we will hear what you say to us when you say it and be obedient to it. Let us not be rebellious, hard-hearted, hard-headed, um, full of ourselves. Lord, Help us to know what it is you want us to do by our time in the Word 
in the thinking about the things of God. In Jesus' name, amen.